And I love the way that Ellison told us as a church today that we're doing really well in the area of human trafficking. Yeah. Not a goal that we've had as a church for long, but I think he meant anti-human trafficking. Okay, we stand against. Okay, moving on. So, so there was a moment on my sabbatical last year when I met Jesus. Not the actual Jesus, but a representative of him unlike any I had ever met before. I think, I think most of you in this room will know that as I stepped onto my sabbatical last year, I stepped into it in a pretty bad place. My father had just passed away a few months prior, and I was dealing with deep resentment and anger in my heart towards God, why God had taken my father so quickly and what felt to me so unjustly. I was also dealing with the other counter emotion of feeling incredible amount of shame on myself for not being the son that I could have been to my dad. And then alongside of that, I also had this growing emotion in me that I deserved better from God than how I was being treated. I mean, I'm a pastor after all. I mean, if anybody has earned any brownie points with God, surely it should have been me. I mean, all the sacrifices, countless sermons, growing a church, surely I should have had something of the favor of God on my life. And yet I found myself in a position with my father taken, feeling terrible about myself, feeling bitter and angry to God, and feeling like I deserved better and yet had been treated so poorly by the one I had given my life to serve. When I stepped into sabbatical, I stepped in so far away from my relationship with God, which is probably why I needed to meet Jesus. Now, God did a funny thing when I was on sabbatical. Almost everywhere I went and almost everything I did, God has a, a sense of humor. He, he put old men about my father's age around my life. Like, like older gentlemen who had sons like my age. I mean, like, I played quite a lot of golf when I was on sabbatical. I was taking all my anxiety out on that little white ball, hitting it as hard as I could. And every time I signed up for, for like, a tea time or something like this at some random golf club, I'd be assigned next to randomly some old man in his 70s with a son about my age. And for the next 18 holes, I had to journey with this guy as he told me a little bit about his life and mentored me as an old man. Anytime I took a flight without my family, sure enough, guess who would be sitting next to me? An old man in his 70s with a son about my age. One time I was standing in a supermarket randomly in the middle of nowhere in America. There was an old man in front of me and an old man behind me, and I got into conversation with them, both in their 70s, both with men my age. And I began to think to myself that this is God's way of actually beginning to chip away at that cold and hardened exterior of my life. And these men that God put around me during those four months uh, became mentors to me in their little moments that they spoke into my life. I remember writing their names down in my journal. There was Gavin, and there was John, and there was Michael, and there was Scott. And they had fascinating lives, different to mine, but they had sons that they had grown. And, and as we talked about fatherhood and what that meant, I began to soften myself. And then I met George, the one who reminded me of Jesus. I met George in the most random of places. I met him on a horse ranch in the middle of New Mexico. My wife and I uh, and my daughter Mia were staying in Santa Fe uh, at some friend's place for five weeks, just the three of us. And, 
And during that time, we had signed Mia up for horse riding lessons because we knew that Mia loved to horse ride, and this was a great time and place to do it. And so she was going for horse riding lessons three days a week at this local horse club. And on one weekend, they said, hey, we're all going out to the middle of New Mexico for this horse show jumping exhibition. We'd love you to come and watch. And so we got in the car this day, and we we looked at Google Maps, and it was a two-hour drive in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. I remember turning off the, the highway at the right time, and we traveled down this little dirt road for what seemed like ages, and then we crested over this hill, and on our left was this beautiful farmhouse, and then down below us was a valley. Now, I'm from Hong Kong. I've lived here most of my life. I mean, you see buildings everywhere. This was like nothingness as far as your eyes could see. And right there in the middle of this valley was a bunch of, of stables and horses. And we drove past the beautiful farmhouse, down the little uh, crooked path. We parked the car and we walked over to where all the horses were jumping. And there was this beautiful old wooden log. And we sat down on this log. And sure enough, after about two minutes, an old man in his 70s sat down on my right side. Now, by the time, this was about the ninth old man encounter I had had on my sabbatical. So immediately I knew that God was up to something. And so I turned in my extroverted kind of way that I have, and I started to engage in this man. He told me his name was George, and I shared my name. And immediately, straight away, he says, you don't sound like you're from New Mexico. I said, well, I'm not. Thank you very much. Now, he looked like he was from New Mexico. He had, like, weathered jeans. He had cowboy boots. He had the belt buckle with the horse on it. He had the hat and everything like that, the checkered shirt. This guy was quintessential cowboy, okay? And I was wearing kind of what I'm wearing right now, right? He said, where are you from? And so I told him, I'm, I'm from Hong Kong. And, and then I found myself, because this was about the ninth encounter with an old man, I found myself just kind of verbal diarying every pain and hurt of my last little while. I'm a pastor of a church, I started to tell him. And oh, and then all this happened. And then my father died of cancer after two weeks of struggle. And, and I started to just go like, blah, blah, blah. And I started, no, I didn't hold back at all. I told him all my pain, my anger, and my hatred, and feeling bad about being a son. And the whole time he's just sitting there, I just want to watch horses, is probably what he was thinking. But... Here's this guy telling him his whole life story, and he sits there, and he's just like, he doesn't say anything. He, he nods his head. He's got the kindness in his eyes. It's like that log became my Freudian couch to this man. And after I just blurbed out my whole life and all my pain and all the things that I hated about myself and that I hated about God, he turns to me, and he has these eyes piercing in me, and like, there's no judgment. There's no upsetness or anything like that, and and he turns to me and goes, would you like to hear a story? I said, yeah, I'd love to hear a story. He said, I want to tell you a little bit about my life. And it turns out that George was the owner of the farm that we were sitting on. He was the one who lived in that beautiful big farmhouse up the road. And uh, he, he had had a very successful career for about 40 years in a city. And him and his wife, uh, they'd been married for over 40-something years, and they'd had this great successful career. And about 10 years previously, he sold his business, and they purchased this farm in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. And they moved there, and they'd been living there for 10 years, and they'd be building quite a successful horse ranch out there. And about two years prior, his wife had developed some mental health issues. And she'd fallen into, into quite a depressive state. And about a year before I met George, about the same-ish time that my dad was beginning to struggle as well, George came home from a long day out in the field to a sight that none of us would want to see. He came into his farmhouse, and his wife had shot herself with a shotgun. 
And she had put the shotgun in her mouth and sat on their living room couch and pulled the trigger. George came home and he scooped up his wife and sat on that couch and held her in his arms. And for hours he wailed and he cried and he wailed and he cried. And as he's telling me this story, I'm sitting there and every pastoral ability in me has lost itself. It's gone. I have no words for him. I mean, how do I even begin to address somebody who's gone through that kind of suffering and pain? And he said to me, you know what, Andrew, as I stood there, as I sat there and held my wife in my arms, I had a profound encounter with Jesus. And that wasn't what I was expecting him to say. And then he said these words, and later on I wrote them down as best as I could remember. They were some of the most profound words I'd ever heard. I want to read you what he said to me. He said this. He said, I count that day as one of the most important of my life, for I consider in that moment that Jesus allowed me to encounter a small glimpse of the immensity of the suffering he endured on the cross for my own sin. As I held my wife in my arms, I tasted something of that pain, of that death, of that grief. And I knew he loved me enough to show me something of the cost. That day I was invited to once again pick up my cross and perhaps now he is inviting you to pick up yours. I had no words because I realized that this was a profound encounter with God. That this man had suffered something that none of us would ever want to encounter. And rather, unlike me, who thought I had such privilege and that I deserved to be treated better, he was able to so humble himself that he would realize that he didn't deserve anything. That the very fact that he took a breath was the grace of God. That even in the most profound moment of suffering and anguish, he could find himself in a place where his relationship with Jesus was so deep that yes, he was upset, yes, he was traumatized, and yet in there he could reflect that Jesus paid such a cost, that that pain that he was feeling was in somehow connected to the greater pain that Jesus had as he took the world's sin on his shoulders and sacrificed his life for us, that in holding his wife in his arms, he actually became closer to Jesus. And here I was, a pastor from a church in Hong Kong who had just seen my father pass away, and I had gone as far away from Jesus as possible. I saw in George what I failed to see in myself as I looked in the mirror. Someone who knew what it was to be human in its fullness and its most beauty and in suffering and in pain and still worship God. I came out of that experience and it led me into a profound time of reflecting which has led all the way to this sermon series that we're embarking on today. We're calling this series Amago Dei, which really is the Latin term for image of God. It's the proclamation that God makes right in the beginning of all Scripture when He creates humanity. He says, this is my image. Let us create male and female in our image. These are the image bearers of the divine. 
And as I sat next to George in that log, I saw the image of the divinity of God sitting next to me like I had never seen it before. He was more fully human than any other human being I had ever encountered. And in the light of his Imago day, I was deeply challenged to think about mine. And I, and I realized that that I had gotten myself into a point where I wasn't the type of person that God had created me to be. See, if I was to summarize it, I would say it like this, that, that in my own sense of pride and privilege of myself, and, and through that a, a retreat into comfort and security, I had basically forgotten my core identity as someone who worships Jesus. I, I, I had forgotten what it was to live out that core calling that we have in Christ to love God and love neighbor. Any time that we retreat ourselves into a sense of, I deserve this, I'm this, I have some pride, I have some arrogance in myself, we will always find ourselves diminishing God as we raise ourselves up, and therefore in the actual practice, potentially, of forgetting what being a Christian is all about, to love him with everything that we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. George lived that beautifully despite the pain and in that invited me into a new way of being. As I reflected on this, I began to think about the scriptures and I began to realize that I was actually in good company that actually I think the primary struggle that Israel had with their God in the scriptures was the struggle of, of dealing with this sense of pride and privilege about being the chosen people, which diminished their responsibility and need for God and raised up their own profile. And as I saw this as the primary thing that I think Israel struggled with in the scriptures, I also realized that I think it's the primary thing that often we Christians today still struggle with. And so what I want to do over the next five weeks with us in this series is I want to actually unpack why it is that I think we all struggle with these issues and why I think so often we forget what it is to truly be made in the image of God. And if we could just recounter that, grasp a hold of that, be refreshed in that, I think we might become again the people that God wants us to be. I don't think there's ever a more important time than here in our city right now and in our world globally for the church to recapture the Imago Day, to really know what it is, to be made in the image of God. There's a passage that I, I want to sit this uh, whole series in, which is a very, very famous passage in the Old Testament. But it's one that I think actually encaptures exactly what it is to live as an image bearer of the divine in the world today. It's Micah 6, 8. Uh, and again, a, a scripture that I'm sure you're familiar with. If not by name, you will be when I read it out to you now. Let me read this to us. It says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Two quick reflections on this before I say anything else. First of all, this is the most familiar scripture, perhaps, of the Old Testament to us, isn't it? 
I mean, there are countless numbers of fridge magnets, cheesy Christian posters, Pinterest posts, stuff on social media, those little stickers on the back of your bumper car, right? There is so much that has been taken from this passage and blurted out there into the world as if we kind of know what this passage is all about, but actually our familiarity with it actually drains this passage from what I think God really wants to say to us about it. So the first thing I'm going to challenge you with is don't allow your familiarity with this passage to tell you what you think it really is saying to you. Because I guarantee as we open this up, it tells you something very differently. Are you with me? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. When we read passages like this, we as Christians, we love these passages. And why we love them is because we have this tendency to use these passages to speak about everybody else. Oh, he has shown you, oh Christian, what is good? Oh, yeah, to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Let me show you all the people in the world that don't do that. Let me throw this passage on the window of my car to tell all those bad people out there that they're not acting justly, they don't show any mercy, and oh, you're not humble. But if you just humble yourself before God, you might come to know Him and be saved. Let me take this passage and place myself as the biblical protagonist. I'm going to use this passage from Micah to tell all of you guys out there all the stuff you're doing wrong. And I I kid you not, throughout the protest movement last year, I was sickened by the number of Christians that took this passage, threw it up on their social media field when they wanted to say something wrong about the government or something wrong about the police or something wrong about the protesters. Oh, man, you know what is good. You need to act justly. You need to be merciful. You need to walk humbly. So often as Christians, we take a passage like this and we place ourselves as if we are God's mouthpiece to the world. This passage was written to God's people. This was written so God's people would realize that they are not the perfect ones. That they're not the ones to judge their fingers when there's so much injustice found in them. Here's the point. You've got to get this. We are not the good guys. Come on, church. We are not the good guys. We, we are sinners in need of a Savior. Oh, man, there's injustice in me. I'm a pastor. My father dies, and I want to be as far away from God as possible. Oh, I mean, there is injustice in me. And, and I realize as, I, as, as we sit in this, we are not the good guys. And when we open up Micah 6, 8, the last thing we should do is throw it up on that feed as a way of judging everybody out there when God originally spoke it over his people as a judgment to them. <laughs> so when we put this passage on our fridges and on our social media feeds, may it be a constant reminder to us of our personal tendency towards unjust actions and thoughts, towards critical assignments towards others, towards our self-centered lifestyle that always puts us in a place where we really, really need the grace of God. May this passage be not a reminder about everybody else's unjust practices. May it be a reminder to us that we are not living as the Imago Day, as the true people that God has called us to be. May I be more just. May I have more mercy. May I be humble again. Now, When you begin to open up the context of this passage, you begin to understand why God was so anxious to let his people know about this. 
You see, Micah is one of the 8th century prophets alongside of three others, Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. And they're actually writing their prophecies in one of the most central times of Israel's history. It's a time where Israel was in its place, where it was just about to be judged before God. And in the 8th century, uh, God raises up these prophets as vehicles of grace. And they speak strongly about the issues that are happening in Israel, but they do so in order to help Israel to repent and to change. This, this passage from Micah, in fact, the whole book of Micah is not an easy book to read. You read this book, and it's pretty scary. There's some pretty strong things that God says, because God has some real issues with what's happening in Israel. But God brings it at a time where they could change and be saved from that judgment if they would just listen. Let me show you just quickly a map here. This map uh, will show you the uh, kind of unfolding of what was happening in the time of Micah. Now, don't worry, you don't need to read any of this. But the, the nice like, little purple area at the top there were the ten tribes that had split from the other two and had gone north in this time of the 8th century. The, the kind of tanned brown, I don't know what kind of color that is, in the bottom there are the two tribes that remain behind. They were Judah, or call, came, called themselves Judah. Micah is prophesying to the Judah people, whereas uh, Amos and Isaiah prophesy upwards to the uh, people of Israel. But they're all the people of God. Does that make sense? Now what's going to happen just a little bit after uh, the prophecy of Micah is that Assyria are going to come down from the north in 722 and attack everybody there. And then just a little bit later in about 670-ish BC, Babylon's going to come from the east and come in this way and attack Judah. In other words, the judgment is going to come because they didn't heed the words of Micah's prophecy. And so this is the moment where Micah speaks into his people. Now, he's got two big issues with them, or at least God does through Micah. Two big issues. One, in their political leadership. They were leading the people really oppressively. The second area they had a problem was, was their economic policies. They were keeping the rich rich and the poor poor. And even the priests of the priesthood within the church were a part of this. In fact, in just a few verses after our famous Micah 6, 8, God brings that judgment to his people by all their practices. I want to read this to you. This is from the uh, message version, which I kind of love because it really puts it uh, honestly. It says, do you expect me to overlook obscene wealth that you've piled up by your cheating and fraud? Do you think I'm going to tolerate your shady deals and your shifty scheming? I'm tired of the violent rich bullying their way with bluffs and lies. I'm fed up. Beginning now, you're finished. You'll pay for your sins down to your last cent. No matter how much you get, it will never be enough. Hollow stomachs, empty hearts. No matter how hard you work, you'll have nothing to show for it. Bankrupt lives, wasted souls. I mean, this is strong stuff. But you read the beginning of this, and if I'm perfectly honest with you, you could read that in a newspaper today. These are the problems that we still have in our world right now. Could I argue that they're the problems that we find on our doorstep in our city right now? How is the church reacting? Are we reacting like God's people were in those days? So Micah comes in chapter 6 and he creates a courtroom. I love this. The prophecy is a courtroom drama. And God is on one side and the people of God on the other. Let me jump back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Is this helpful or interesting? Are you with me still? Yeah. All right. So verses 1 and 2 says this. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. 
Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against the people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Do you get the, the, the scene, right? This is the opening arguments of the scene. And I love what God does. He stands up, and he doesn't call upon the people to bear witness because the people have forgotten that they are Mago Day. So he calls on creation. He says, mountains rise up. He says, the valleys and the foundations bear witness to what I'm about to say. In other words, God calls all of creation to bear witness to how the people of God were acting. How were they acting? Verse 3. My people, this is God, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, canceled and what Balaam, son of Boer, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God stands up. This is fascinating. You've got to catch this in the text. He stands up and rather being the prosecutor, he becomes the, the accused, the defender. He says, what have I done to you? Like, like, what have I done that you would treat me in this way? Why are you treating me how you are? Have you forgotten all the things I've done for you? And, and then God, and this is so cool, he mentions three things from Israel's history to remind them of who he is and what he's done for them. The first is Egypt. He says, Do you, have you forgotten the Exodus already? Have you forgotten that I met you in Egypt when you were enslaved? And out of my compassion, I pulled you out of there. I liberated you as the people and brought you into the promised land. I mean, are you so quick to forget that just a little while ago you were slaves and needed a liberator? I stepped in, liberated you. And then after that, he, he talks about this, this idea of Balaam and the king Balak. Now, this is a bit of a strange story. You may not know exactly what this is talking about straight away. This is the donkey story. Remember Sunday school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember the donkey speaking in Sunday school? Right, that's what God says next. He says, after this amazing exodus, let me talk to you about the speaking donkey. Do you remember the speaking donkey? The speaking donkey is this. When my people are so pathetic at standing up for who I am, I will raise up the animals to speak on my behalf. I can transform a donkey to bring a judgment against the king because that's the kind of God that I am. I, I will make sure that my character and who I am is so found in this world that when even my people are silent, I will raise up and transform. I'm a transforming God. The, the, the donkey that spoke into the king was to bring transformation in the city. So God is saying, first of all, in Exodus, I'm a liberator. Second of all, with the donkey, I'm a transformer. And then he reminds him of two places. You've got to be careful how you say this. I remember Tony sitting here. I remember one year. This was years ago. Tony stood up and did a sermon on Shittim. <laughs> that was a difficult sermon to get through, I tell you. But he mentions these two places. He calls them Shittim and Gigal. And he says, hey, do you remember those two places? Now, Shittim was the very last place Israel got to as they fled out of Egypt before they crossed to the promised land. And Gilgal was the very first place they set foot in when they got into the promised land. So God reminds them of these two locations to speak of his provision for them. I, I brought you to Shittim, and then I took you through to Gigal, and in doing those two things, I provided out of my generosity to you. You didn't deserve it, but in my generosity, I brought you into the promised land. So here's the thing. 
What have I done to so deserve how you're treating me? I am your liberator, I am your transformer, and I am generous to you. Are you you with me still? This is what God's saying to the people. Liberator, a transformer, and I'm generous to my people. And you've forgotten that I am those things. And because you've forgotten that, you are not living out your image of me. Which is why he then goes on, to bring the accusation of all the things that they try to do to try to win God's favor. Verses 6 onwards, he says, what shall I, uh, come, How should I come before the Lord and bow down and exalt before the God? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves for a year? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is God being sarcastic about what Israel are doing. He's saying, You know how you, Israel, are trying to pretend like you're the people of God? You think that you can live whatever way you want, you can treat people however you want, as long as you're doing your pious little religious rituals. As long as you're burning those calves, oh, as long as you're ticking the box of sacrifice in the temple, as long as you're doing the things that you think you need to do to win my favor, then you can live however you want. And God is judging them and saying, that is not right. Your burnt offerings mean nothing to me if you're acting like you're acting. Your calves that you bring, a thousand, I won't even listen. You even sacrifice your first son. I won't even pay attention because it's not about your religious activity that's going to turn my heart to you. You think you're the chosen people, so you deserve me to act how you want me to act. You're trying to buy my favor with your offerings. Oh, with your church attendance. This is a challenging church. Let let me me put this into our context. You think that you can live however you want, Vine Church. Because you've said that prayer of salvation. Oh, Jesus has come into your life. You have eternal salvation in him. You come to church. You, you, You either watch online for Church Everywhere for the last three months, or you show up today here in church. And you sing your songs and you raise your hands and you think you can live however you want because you said that prayer, Jesus has saved you, and you go to church. And you think in doing those things, it doesn't matter then how you live because you are saved. And and God is writing to his people and he's saying, that is not right. Hmm. Walter Brueggemann, one of the great writers and reflectors and theologians of the Old Testament. Let me read to you how he says it. He says it like this. Israel is attempting to wield its worship in a manner consistent with its distorted political habits. Just as leaders, politicians, and prophets employed wealth to guarantee access, secure immunity, and to turn a blind eye, so now the priests offer up this commodity worship to guarantee access to the divine present, blind God's eyes to their injustice, and court material blessings. This was me before I went on sabbatical. God, I deserve more. Why am I being treated this way? I've prayed the prayers. I've preached the sermons. I've raised up a church. God, why? I mean, surely I deserve more. Israel, before God. We're the chosen people. Yeah, you took us out of Israel, out of Egypt. Yeah, good. So we deserve this from you. And and I'll do these burnt offerings and these sacrifices in order you to give to me. And God is standing there and he says, that is not the way I want you to respond. Enter into the courtroom, Micah 6, 8. Oh, 
he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Liberation, transformation, generosity. So what is required of you? More tithing? More church services? Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. You do those three things. You will actually begin to image something of me in this world. But you've forgotten all three of those things. And if you don't repent and turn from that, you will find yourself in judgment, Micah is saying to Israel. This is sobering and yet so powerful because it invites us in to suddenly going, there is a new way to be. This passage is not for my fridge so I can judge everybody out there who seems to be unjust in my eyes. This is a passage that rocks me to the core because I realize I'm not the person I was called to be. And so often in my religious fervor, I'm trying to gain favor from God. Let me now do the hard work of pulling all of the threads together and giving you one slide that's going to blow your mind. Are you ready? If you like your cameras, get your cameras out. This one's awesome. Here we go. Israel in the court of God, Micah 6, 1 to 8. What God has done, he's done the exodus, which makes him a liberator. Balak and Balaam with the donkey, he's a transformer. Shittim and Gigal makes him generous. What Israel did, they oppress and enslave when they should have been liberators. So God requires them to act justly. Israel judged and criticized when they should have transformed nations. They needed to learn to love mercy. They hoarded and self-focused for themselves, whereas God was generous. So now they need to walk humbly. Oh, Micah 6.8, but it's so nice, and I can use it to judge everybody around me. You know, maybe Micah 6.8 is actually a passage for us, the church, in this era. Maybe it's a passage for me personally. Maybe it's a passage for you. Maybe it's a deep, resonating recall for you to change your life. And the way we do that is not through our effort, more carbs, more tithing, more attendance. It comes from actually re-establishing and renewing what it was to be the image of God in the first place. See, when we forget God, we end up forgetting ourselves. And may this series help you to remember who He is so that you might be rebirthed in who you are. That's the next five weeks. Can we pray together? Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we just are humbled, Lord. And Father, we as a church, as we step back into our physical gatherings, we now step back into this moment. And Father, I'm grateful that you brought that man, George, into my life, such a critical time of my life, to learn something so profound and yet so basic, really. That this idea of justice, the idea of mercy and forgiveness, the idea of humility and laying down our pride are so central to what it is to be the children of God. Father, you called us to image you, so we must remember who you are. And Lord, as you are glorified before us, we then are able to image something of that glory where George was ravaged in his suffering and yet saw a glimpse of your suffering and it humbled him. Father, may we in our every moment, may we in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, in our marriages, 
where we think we deserve so much. Forgive us. May we catch a glimpse once again of your power, of your might, of your glory. And may we as, our, as a people desire to humble ourselves before you so that we might become more like you. Just take a moment as we begin this series just to put yourself in the right place. Maybe you need to think about yourself not as that protagonist, the voice of God judging others. You need to put yourself on the right side of the courtroom and realize that so often we're sitting in the dock. And that's not to condemn or to judge you. It's just to put you in a place of saying, God, I, I realize. I realize that I so often forget you in remembering myself. And so, Father, would you help me in this series in the next few weeks to see you bigger and broader so I might regain the image of God in me again. And maybe if you're sitting here today and you realize that something of that image has been dulled recently. Maybe like me, it's because you've been through a really hard time. Maybe it's something that's, that's gone on. Maybe it's through this COVID experience. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe, I don't know what it is. But it's caused you to get angry or bitter or step away or just don't feel as connected. As we start this series, maybe that's your starting point, just to come before the Lord and say, Father, help me. I want to image you again. Lord, would you show yourself to me once more? So Father, would you move upon us as we just reflect on that in your name, Lord.